Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As Pastor Mulker was preaching this morning, I thought we have overlapping but not identical themes, perhaps a bit melancholy, but there's always the joy of the gospel at the end as we're, as we're considering the new year. And life is often quite a bit of ups and downs, many, much pains, as this passage will say, along with the joys. So let us read this well-known passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll look at the first 15 verses. May God give us attentive ears as we hear his word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker for his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as we come now to your word, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to grab our attention, to focus our hearts, to take home and heart the application of your word and to see Christ as the one who is our savior and the one who brings meaning into our lives. Would you use your word tonight powerfully? We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, how do you want to be remembered? I might ask my soldiers that, this battle assembly. How do you want to be remembered? It says something about us and, and how we think. It says that there's a part of us that knows that life should not end at death. We want to continue, but death cuts us short, and so we want to be remembered. But if you think about it too much, well, being remembered you will realize that everyone who remembers you will someday be gone too. And it can leave you with a sense of futility. It doesn't matter. Well, our passage tonight helps you make sense of the seeming futility in life. And here is the message. Embrace life futility because it points to eternity. Embrace life's futility because it points to eternity. What we're going to do tonight is look at life's futility and then an explanation of that, and then a promise. 
And so first we're going to look at life under the sun. Now, this passage doesn't talk about it, but the two chapters before talk about detail, life under the sun, life as if there is no God. I'll just give you a short sample. Chapter one, verse two, the first two, two verses, two through four. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Vanity, meaninglessness. And if you think about life, you'll be confronted with this twofold problem. You long for significance, and yet life seems futile. You long for significance, and yet life seems futile. We certainly do long for significance. You, You long for it in lasting, loving relationships. You want to be known and known. You want to be needed. You want to care for others. You long for significance by wanting to make an impact. Think about what world leaders do to shape the world and leave a legacy. Or artists and writers, they, they, they want to leave a lasting work. And everyone wants to make a difference, to be remembered, to, to leave your stamp on this world somehow. Because we each know deep down inside that life matters. Because we each sense something that says... The world is greater than just what we see here. You've experienced some kind of awe or joy or, or beauty. When Elizabeth and I, before we had kids, we would, we would go out and we'd rent a state cabin in Pennsylvania. That's when we were residents of Pennsylvania. And there's this beautiful place called Ricketts Glen. It's, it's up in the mountains, northeast PA. It's about five or six hours from here, which is why we don't go there anymore now. But beautiful hiking areas in the top of this mountain. It's known for its waterfalls and we were introverts, so we'd go in the winter when there was no one else around, and we would just read books in the cabin, but then we'd go out and, and hike. And you know, it would be, be sub-freezing. And, and we'd hike and hike, and then all of a sudden we'd be confronted by, by this frozen waterfall. Just beautiful, pristine, it's glory, it's crisp, cool, majestic brilliance. And you'd stop, and it would take your breath away. You've all experienced something that you know this, this has got to mean something. And yet, life seems futile. And we, there's the apparent point, pointlessness, the, the cancers, the, the mass shootings that go around. There's the continuous circle of life, whether it's the, the diapers and the dishes and the meals or the, or the flu season or the annual church budgets, or the unending grind of the work weekend, or when I was deploying the military, it was the Groundhog Day. Every day is just the same over and over again. Even the seasons and their joyful change can become a reminder of this relentless, unceasing pace of life. Life seems futile, and, and pleasures can't save you. They fade, or they don't deliver what you hope for, and even when they're wonderful, they're incomplete. Several years ago now, some of you might remember this, before the Lord blessed us with our wonderful kids, there was a couple adoptions that we were looking at, and and there was one that looked promising, and so we were painting the nursery. Some of you did that with us, and we got the crib set up, and Elizabeth was, was getting the dresser drawer full of little girl clothes, and then it fell through. And we remember celebrating Christmas Eve together in that big house by ourselves, and It was a wonderful time, but we both thought that without little Anna, there was a shadow that was cast of sadness. Pleasures can't save you. 
from this meaninglessness. And then, and then there's death. Ecclesiastes, if it tells you anything, is that life is very short and then death ends all things. Around this time, my family likes to watch an old romantic comedy. It's called Bachelor Mothers, filmed way back in 1939, right before the U.S. entered World War II, starring uh, Ginger Rogers and David Niven, if those names mean anything to you. Old movie, stars, I, I hear a couple, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a delightful little flick that doesn't take itself seriously, and it's hilarious with all kinds of facial expressions. And I love watching that because it's just a good movie. And you watch people who are so full of life and expression and human emotion, and then every once in a while thinking, now they're all dead. You might just think, you need to get out a little bit more. Um, but isn't it true that we all die? And just to make it worse, at least, you know, science today, and by science I mean the religion of science, naturalism says, yeah, and if we do survive as a species, there'll be sun death in a billion years or so. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world, right? It seems all futile. And this is unique for humans. Animals don't think about these things. If your dog greets you at the door, it doesn't say, you know, you know, I only have a few years left and then he's going to replace me with another dog. Life sure is pointless. No, life for us under the sun, it seems futile. It's full of meaninglessness, it seems. Without God, this longing for significance will lead to frustration and despair. And this is really, I'll just point out, consistent with an atheist worldview as well. I had a friend when I was in my second deployment and he, was, um, he grew up in the Mormon faith, and then he, he left that faith, and he, he became a, a disciple, quite, almost quite literally, of Richard Dawkins, and very atheistic. And so we actually, he worked in my shop with me, and so we swapped books. I gave him Tim Keller's Reason for God, and he gave me Richard Dawkins' The Greatest Show on Earth. And we both read them. I don't think it moved the needle for either of us too much, but we talked about it, and you know, we were able to have an amicable talk. But at the end of it, I said, you know, Kevin... You are such a happy guy. I love working with you. You are, you're delightful. You're jovial. I'm so glad you're in the office. And man, I just want to tell you, it doesn't, that's inconsistent with your beliefs. Your beliefs, if you follow them to their conclusions, are, are, are so depressing. I'm glad you're not depressed, but I'm just telling you, brother, if you look at your life, something doesn't match. You know, just kind of left it there, but, but it's true. It's futile. So praise God, there is more to life than this. There's life under God. And here's where we're going to start to spend some, some dedicated time in the text. Verse 11 puts a finger on your natural frustration. It says also he has put eternity into man's heart. But the reason here that you long for significance is because you were made in God's image. You were supposed to live forever. Death is not natural in the ultimate sense. And so when you get those little glimpses of wonder and the beauty of this world and family and relationship and human accomplishment, these little bits of fragments scream for meaning. That's, that's eternity in the hearts of man. God's put there. I appreciate what C.S. Lewis said when he wrote this. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The books of the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them, for they are not the thing itself. 
They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a true tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I'll read that first sentence again. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God has put eternity into your heart. And yet, at the same time, it says that God works in this world so that man can't put it all together. We have this sense of eternity, and yet, by ourselves, we we can't put it all together. We can't understand it. God has planned out the big storyline from the beginning. But all that you and I can see is, is a tiny sliver of a tiny piece of history. You know, you get about 80 years, take or so, maybe in South Jersey. But really, it's like those collage puzzles. You know those puzzles where there's all these little pictures and together it makes up the bigger picture? I I really usually can't see the bigger picture. I just see the little pictures, which is kind of ironic because I'm generally a big picture guy. It doesn't work that way for me, but God can see it. But but we're just one tiny little picture. And, and, And you can't see all of what's going on. That's the way life is. I spent the last year of my life fighting through cancer. Now I'm in remission, but I'm dealing with the aftermath. And there have been several, maybe maybe hundreds of times that I say, okay, Lord, I trust you, but what do you have for me? What was, what was the purpose of this last year? What were you doing? Um, there are some things that I can see of how God was working, certainly. Was it everything? No. But that, that's what it means to be a creature, to be a created thing. You don't know everything, but you sure know that you were made for something. Derek Kidner, a commentator on Ecclesiastes, puts it this way. We catch brilliant moments, even apart from the darkness interspersed with them. They leave us unsatisfied for lack of any total meaning that we can grasp. Unlike the animals immersed in time, we long to see them in their full context. For we know something of eternity. And so verse 11 explains your frustration. But it also states a promise. That God has made everything beautiful in its time. What this means is that God has everything under control and planned out. Now previously, Ecclesiastes has shown how everything under the sun is pointless and wearying. But now it shows how God is at work in the cycles of life. And it's actually a very positive attitude towards life. It says God has made everything beautiful in its time. You may not be able to understand the course of life, but God is working out his plan. Right? This, this promise of beauty turns the futility of toil and work into the gift of God. Let's look at verse 12. I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. If you want to be happy, then live as creatures who accept your role in time, living through the seasons and rejoicing in them and reveling in their goodness. It is good to eat and drink and work and to enjoy it. And if you are a New Year's type of people, go home and party tonight. Better yet, go to Horace and Emma's and party tonight, those wild people. Though, Though I have been told that if you get there after nine, the windows might be dark. But it's, God has given us these times to celebrate. And this is not just wishful thinking. This is grounded in the promise and character of God. 
Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, God seeks which has been driven away. Now it says here God's works are eternal. They are complete. They are full. There is nothing lacking or missing. Verse 15 even goes so far to say that God is actively involved in the continuous cycle of life. Verse 15 at the end is is difficult to understand where it says God seeks what has been driven away. There's two best possibilities, I think, are that God, first of all, God seeks what is past. That's the NIV translation. In other words, he brings about in the present the cycles of life that have passed. Another understanding translates that God seeks what hurries along. I slightly prefer that one. It's the never-ending rat race. God is, seeks out and watches over the hurrying and scurrying of life. Either way, this tells you that God is actively involved in this continuous cycle of life. Just stop and let that soak in for a moment. That God is actively, intimately involved in the small details of your life? What does that say about you? You're not just an insignificant speck. And when you roll out of bed to start your routines again, on either Monday or Tuesday, however, with the holiday week, it's going to work out. God is there with you. His plans, his purpose, is there with you. Now, there's there's a reason for this. Verse 14, it says, so that the people fear him. Not a petrified fear but of reverent awe, worship, and submission. Now, there's a lot of hard questions out there, and I bet you probably have a quick list of five that you wouldn't mind asking God. But as a creature, you know you're you're not going to know the beginning from the end. But you do know the one who does. And you can trust him. When you put your faith in Jesus, one of the ways that you fear God is to trust him, even when you don't have the answers, even though you don't know why you're going through a particular situation. This is what it means to fear God. The promise is that God has made everything beautiful in his time, in the day in, day out, seasons and cycles of life. And that's a wonderful promise that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. But we can fill that promise in a little bit more after Jesus coming. You and I don't know the end from the beginning of the story, but we do know the middle, don't we? So turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 15. And when I, when I preach this or something like it to soldiers, I, I might say something like, do you know God's answer to the futility of life? What's the answer to life's futility? It's, well, it's, it's what we proclaim every week, that God has broken the power of death and our rebellion in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, as, we've, as I was you know, studying Ecclesiastes, I couldn't help but think that the Apostle Paul had Ecclesiastes in the back of his mind as he wrote the first letter um, to the church at Corinth. He wrote in chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That sounds a little bit like the words of the teacher that we heard about eating and drinking and working, didn't it? But now even closer, um, in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about how God has countered the futility and emptiness of this fallen world, how he's raised Jesus from the dead. 
Now I know that dipping into a passage like this, for many of you, this is very familiar. For some of you, it might be new. and It's beautiful and glorious. But just as humans, when, when we come against something familiar, especially when we're dipping into it, it's just very easy to you know, shut off and to coast. But you know, it's actually the case that the things that are most beautiful to us, we love hearing over and over again. In fact, I, I confess, you know, I'm, I'm a Penn State football fan. Um, it's been a long time since they've, they've won a championship. But six years ago, they did. And, and, and I admit, a little sheepishly, that later that year, I went back and rewatched some of the games that were really close and where they beat all the people that they usually lost to. And you're saying, well, that's silly. You knew how it was going to end. You've already watched it. Why would you do it over again? Because I'm connected with my team. Because I love them. Because I feel like somehow I'm part of it. Well, we're connected to Christ and what he's done. And so Paul is now talking about people who are toying with the idea how maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And Paul goes on to show how destructive this really is. And this goes back to the living forever. Let's look at verse 12. Where Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do you hear those words? Vanity, futility, meaninglessness. Now Paul is talking to a world that believes in God and so he addresses the problems of sin. If Christ was not raised, then you are not saved from your sins. But you could easily today say to, to our secular people, uh, Populous. If Christ has not been raised, if there is no creation, then this world has no purpose and someday it will all end in sun death. And that is it. The end. Paul gets at this meaninglessness where he quotes Isaiah in verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? If there's no purpose in this life, why am I doing all these hard things? Why am I bearing ridicule? Why am I putting this effort into it when it's not going to matter anyway? But that's not the case. And here's the Christian hope that Jesus has died and risen and defeated death. And someday you will be raised too. And Paul says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. People of God, you do not know the beginning from the end. But if you fear God, if you put your faith in Jesus, you don't need to fear the end. I experienced that this year, going through cancer treatments. I was looking at very possibly my death, a very rapid and active cancer. And yet I know that Jesus has defeated death. And how that changes the way you look at a diagnosis as you face pain, as you experience disappointment, 
And as you know that he is actively involved and reigning in the seasons and cycles of your life and all of history. So how do we apply this? Well, we can embrace the seeming futility of life. Embrace life's futility because it points to eternity. You know two things. That God is in control, even seeing to the details of these various little cycles of life. And you know that Jesus has conquered death. And this allows you to embrace those futile things of life. Those seemingly pointless times that you were reminded, they they actually remind you of your eternal home and destination. Okay, so life seems pointless. Well, how do you know it's pointless? Why do you know that something is wrong? Because God's put eternity in your heart. Ah, that's right. And it tells me that this broken world is not right. And so when you experience disappointment or crushing pain or something that says meaningless, meaningless, your response can be, that's not right. And I know that. I'm created to live for eternity and Jesus has died and rose from the dead and one day he will transform this world and me. And so you can look to eternity in the face of futility. You know, at the same time, your eternal home allows you to respond to life with real emotions. We can fall into that stoic trap that because we know that God is sovereign. Because we know that Jesus is coming back, nothing should affect me. I don't need to have emotions or show them. Maybe that would actually show a lack of trust in God and His, and his will. But it's just the opposite. In, in those statements, there's a time for this, a time for that. Verse 4 says there's a time to weep as well as a time to laugh. We can weep that this world is broken. We know God's in control, but it's perfectly appropriate to cry at a funeral. I've cried more in this past year than I have in my entire life. And I'm a somewhat emotional guy. I cried contemplating my own death. I wasn't scared of dying, at least in the ultimate sense. But it brought me to tears, thinking about my mortality. I cried a lot more thinking about leaving three young children without a father. And you could say, well, why are you crying? Don't you know God's in control? Don't you trust your father that he'll be a father to your children if if he takes you home? Well, yeah. And yet there is a real place to lament and grieve even as you hold on by faith. Now contrast this with a naturalistic view of the world. Of course you cry when a loved one dies. Who wouldn't? It hurts. You wouldn't be human. But is it truly meaningful? Isn't it just a programmed evolutionary response? By the way, don't talk to someone this way if someone's just died, but you know, you think about it. The universe doesn't care. You don't care if an ant dies. The universe doesn't care when you die. You're not much bigger than an ant. You see the difference in perspective, how knowing your eternal destination gives you meaning to what seems futile. And the same goes for positive emotions, too. You know, we can party, and our partying does not have to prove our existence. Our partying is not just a way for passing time as we're waiting for oblivion. Feasting and celebration are part of our lives because we, they point to eternity. When I was younger, when I tasted those glimpses of goodness, I kind of wished, man, I just wish this day could go on forever. 
so good. Couldn't, couldn't it just continue on if every day could be like this? Uh, now, when there's a wonderful time, it's a little different view. Family comes, you have rich conversation, wonderful food, and we say, Lord, that was wonderful. Won't heaven even be more spectacular? Because that's what it's pointing towards. That's our final home. You can embrace the highs and lows of life, the seeming futility under the sun, because they point you to eternity. So people of God, who knows what your future will bring? Who knows what 2023 will be? It could bring much joy, much pain. It could have many grinding groundhog days. You don't know all the answers, but you do know this, that you are going to live forever, that this world is not the final story, and your God created you for eternity. And because of that, your life has meaning even in the present futility. Please pray with me. Father, as we sung earlier, you are an anchor for our soul. We thank you for our great King Jesus who is reigning back and for the difference he makes in our lives. Would you give us the faith? Would you give us the insight when we are drugged down by depression, when we're fighting fatigue, when we're swimming in loneliness, to be able to look forward and know that any futility or meaninglessness or seeming pain now points to our heavenly home. And would you fill us? So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.